If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson. Today, I'm sitting down with Alberto Cairo, author of How Charts Lie, visualization consultant with Google and the night chair in visual journalism at the School of Communication of the University of Miami. Alberto, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I am thrilled to be speaking with you after reading your book. Um, and before we get into anything else, maybe you could give us a little bit about your background and where you're coming from. Sure, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, my name is Alberto Cairo. I am originally from Spain, uh, northern Spain. I lived in Madrid, in North Carolina, in Brazil. So I've moved around quite a lot. And uh, since 2012, I am a professor of visualization and information graphics and information design at the University of Miami, where I hold the night chair in, in visual journalism, as you said. So my entire career has been devoted to the visual display of information. So I've designed anything from pictorial illustrations that explain, for example, the structure of a building or that explains uh, explain how an accident happened to data visualizations, visual representations of quantitative data, which is the focus of my work in the past uh, decade or so. Uh, I'm the author of several books besides How Chats Fly. I also published uh, The Functional Art, The Truthful Art, and right now I'm working on a, on a new one that hopefully will be out in 2023, all of them are about a, about visualization. And as you said, I also consult with companies, not only with Google, but also with others and also some uh, governmental organizations. Yeah, I mean, you, you have a wealth of knowledge. I hope to dig into some of it today. Maybe we can just start with with how charts lie, the idea of that. I think it's it's really... We kind of, I think, we kind of have an idea that charts can be misleading. I think everyone would agree with that, but I don't think people quite realize until maybe reading your book or or getting information like that just how deceptive they can be. What are what are some of your kind of go to elements that you might point someone to when you're explaining how charts might be able to lie or how how data can be misperceived? What do you tend to to point to as examples? Well, the, the title of the book itself is sort of like it's a joke around one of the main themes that the book touches upon. Uh, many people, many people, when they read the title, they stick to the title and they counter argue, well, charts don't lie, right? People chart with, lie with charts, but charts themselves don't lie because they don't have agency. Mm-hmm. And my response to that is that the, the title of the book is written on purpose to actually prompt you to follow one of the main guidelines that are provided in the book, which is read beyond the title. Right, a title is simply give you a hint of what the book might be about. But if you want to really understand the argument that a book makes, you need to read the book. And in the book itself, I, I sort of like go over a lot of different 
tips that can help a person become a better chart reader. And I try to show that it's not really that charts do lie just because, again, charts are just objects, right? They don't have agency, but they can mislead. Maybe not just because people intend to mislead when they design them, but because we misread them. So in mm. some sense, we lie to ourselves with them. That is sort of like one of the main themes that the book touches upon. So one of the first, uh, among the first pieces of advice that I give people in the book is to, when you see a chart, don't assume that it's a picture that you can simply look at and, and quickly understand. The same way that if you want to understand a written argument, you need to read the argument and then ponder about it, its implications, consequences, presumptions, and so on and so forth. Sometimes you even read beyond the argument itself and try to read between the lines. The same type of approach needs to be made when we read a chart. Right? We cannot simply stare at them or look at them really quickly and move on. We need to stop, read, try to understand, and then even go beyond the, the chart itself. That's the first step. And then there are many different elements of the chart that we can look into uh, to assess whether that chart is uh, adequately designed or not, such as the scale of the chart or the visual representations that are used, the level of detail at which the data is represented in the chart. All those sorts of things are, are topics that, I, that I, 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 I touch upon in the book, providing tons of examples of how to make that assessment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you start with one of, the, one of the main examples of the U.S. election map, which I think is a great visual, because even if listeners are not in the U.S., they've probably seen something representing the U.S. electors. Can you take us through that a little bit? Because it's something that sure, I've, sure, I've often sure, sure. seen this and I've, I've you know, felt yeah. a certain way about it, but you yeah. do a great job, obviously, of, of breaking down what, are the, what is at stake when you see a map that is, you know, it looks on one uh, level, like a, like the vast majority, like everyone in the U.S. is red, meaning Republican mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. But that's that can very well be misleading. So why yeah, don't, can yeah, you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? So yeah, that I mean, the, the book actually originates from my observing how people systematically misinterpret many commonly seen charts out there. And one of them is that one that you mentioned, the uh, representation uh, during an American election of which candidate won where on which county, right? The county level representation of who won where uh, using red and green shades of color. But there are many other examples. Uh, there's one chapter in which I go over uh, hurricane maps, for example, which is another type of graphic that is commonly misinterpreted by people. And that is particularly important for people who live in Florida, like myself, to be able mm -hmm. to understand those types of graphics correctly. But the map itself, I mean, it's always hard to talk about visualizations in a podcast because we cannot show them. But I'm yeah. going to try well, to... that's why the, the American map, I think most people can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So imagine, the Amer just for those of you who are not from the United States, imagine the map of the United States subdivided into counties. So those are smaller subdivisions within states. The United States has 50 states. And then within each one of those states, we have several counties. And when elections, when the results of American elections are reported in the media, uh, usually the media presents first a state level representation, who won where. And then after that, uh, they color code also a county level map. They color code the counties to show which candidate obtained a plurality of the vote in that county, not a majority, but a plurality. Who won more votes 
than any other county, and that results than any other candidate, sorry. And that results in a map that is red or blue, red representing counties in which a Republican candidate won a plurality, and blue for counties that represent counties in which the Democratic candidate vote gain a plurality of the vote. Well, this type of map, if you don't know how, what, what it is that you're looking at, can be easily misused to argue for certain things. For example, former President Trump, when he was under impeachment, he used to tweet that map and uh, appending the caption, try to impeach these, implying, take a look at how much red there is and how little blue there is. Take a look at how much support I have. But obviously, if you think about it, the challenge with that are underlying patterns in, in, in a voters distribution, which is the following. Democratic vote tends to concentrate in highly densely populated areas, urban areas that are very small, in terms of territory, but they are very big in terms of population. And Republican vote tends to be a little bit more dispersed, is much more common in rural areas that are very big in terms of territory, but very small in terms of population. So that is what that map can be misinterpreted. Now, that's why the map, in some sense, lies to you, because you don't know how to read it. But it's not that the map lies. And it is not even that the map is incorrectly designed. There's nothing wrong with the map itself. The problem is your interpretation of what the map is trying to show. And that is one of the, actually, another piece of advice that I give in the book, that whenever we stare at a, gra at a graphic, regardless of whether it's a graph or a map or a diagram, we need to deeply think about what it is specifically that that graphic is trying to show. And we should never infer that it's trying to show something else. So that is not a map that can be used to argue about popular support. It is a map that explicitly and specifically was designed to show only who won where. And that's it. That's all that the graphic is useful for. Yeah, and there are some alternatives that I think uh, are interesting if you want if you want to show a certain point, right? So for for example, right-leaning media will often use the map that illustrates the territory because that looks much bigger. Yeah, it um, looks like an ocean of red with a exactly. few, with a few islands of blue, right? And the other alternative methods of representing that is for example to use dots to represent mm -hmm. voters and, and try to geolocate more or less where those voters vote. And uh, there's actually a cartographer whom I mentioned in the book, Kenneth Field, who has a couple of books called cart titled Cartography and Cartography 2, who has created alternative graphics to represent these. He actually created a map with you know hundreds of millions of, of dots, each one of them representing a voter. And then he color coded the voters according to who they voted for. And then he geolocated those dots. And you can see you know the vast expanses of territory in the United States that are essentially devoid of population. Nobody lives there in the middle of the country, right? They're very sparsely populated. Yeah, and I, I think that points to a, um, an issue that you talk about throughout the book, which is if you want to demonstrate that Republicans are stronger or Democrats are stronger, which is kind of an easy separation we can make, right? Like there's these are two teams, political teams in the U.S. effectively. And so you can imagine why one map would be a nicer choice like if, if you want to uh, push a certain agenda than another one. But I wonder how you would put that in context, because obviously this applies to business decisions, whether you want to emphasize one thing or another is like, it doesn't seem that there's a neutral choice. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong with that. But how no, do you, there, how there, do you think about never, this? Yeah, there, there is never neutral choices in data visualization, the same way that there are no neutral choices when we write. 
-hmm. when we write, we need to make choices. And those choices, this is actually a, a core theme in, in my upcoming book in 2023, which is titled The Art of Insight. It's all about how visualization designers make decisions and choices. And, and the core theme of the book is that almost every single decision that you make in a visualization is going to be subjective and it is going to be, it's going to be flawed in some sense. Right? And the reason why this happens is that a visualization is not just a representation of the underlying reality. It is mm -hmm. an abstraction of that reality. There's, there's very old, this very old saying in cartography that, that goes, the map is not the territory. Because if the map is the territory, then it will be the territory itself, right? Yeah. Whenever we do a map, we create an abstraction. This very, there's, you know, this classic short story by Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges, who describes a, an empire who created a map of the empire that was as big as the empire itself. Well, that's absurd, right? With the same level of detail as reality. So any map is an abstraction, any graphic is an abstraction. And when we create abstractions, we need to make subjective choices. But the point that I'm making the, in the upcoming book is, and I also I hint at this in how chats lie, is that being subjective doesn't mean that it is not justified. We can justify these choices. I represent my data at this level of detail, you know, voter by voter, for example, dot by dot, instead of the, the upper level, because what I want to represent is actually the balance of votes, not who won where. If I want to represent who won where, then I will use this map that uses colors and shades the uh, different counties in the United States because the purpose of that map is to show who won where. So that is a justified choice. It's very subjective, but it can be justified and argued about. Every decision in visualization it can be subject to criticism and further and further debate. So yes, I mean you can you can counter argue with better maps, but you know we can reach an agreement depending on how we conduct these this conversation. You propose something, I propose something else, and then we try to reach a consensus as which type of graphic better represents the underlying realities that we are trying to explain to a particular audience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then when we start to think about this, we have obviously politics and the political representation we see in in the media in particular, we have businesses using charts to obviously tr often try to show how well they're doing for, for stakeholders. Where did your motivation come for the book in general and for this work? Like what, what inspires you or what pushes you forward? Well, I come from the world of journalism where ideally, I wish that this were true in reality and, and in part it is, but Ideally, a journalist, what, what we try to do is to represent always our best understanding of what the truth may be. We may be wrong, right? We may, we may need to correct ourselves, but whenever I create a chart, for example, what I do is to try to express or convey or represent my best understanding of the underlying patterns or insights that a data set may contain. I try to be as, in some sense, as objective as possible, right? As, as, as reasonable as possible at, at presenting, presenting those data. My motivation to write the book and not only the book, but my entire, essentially my entire career is that it's, it's observing how people use visualization with other purposes, for example, for propaganda, or mm -hmm. for or for persuasion or and I'm I'm not against persuasion. All right, if persuasion is motivated by good reasons and ethical ethical motivations, moral motivations, that's great. That that that's fantastic. But you know, creating a visualization to sell a product 
right? And uh, trying to obscure the data that may undermine the perceptions mm. of your product and showing only the data, sharing picking the data that essentially confirms how great your product is. I think that that's unethical. And, and if I see it, I will call it out and I will call it out publicly. So it's those, those instances of uh, misuse of visualization that really worry me on top of misuses that are not related to bad intentions, but simply to lack of knowledge of how to better use data visualization on a daily basis. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about both of those things. So before we get into the more sort of day-to-day -day uses of visualization, I wonder if there are any egregious ones that stand out to you that that either you know inspired you to, to look more deeply into why this is going on, or maybe it uh, showed you that there is sort of widespread misuse of certain kinds of information or, or data what what have been some of the more egregious ones that maybe you've used as examples well in, in the there are plenty in the book already but these are the ones that appear in the book are older from around 2016 2017 something like that so pre-pandemic but throughout the covid pandemic we have also observed you know misuses of data and, and of data visualization one of the most egregious one i would say is for example people at the beginning of the pandemic in the first few months of the pandemic using bar graphs to compare a, the mortality rate due to covid 19 to the mortality rate due to car crashes now if you create a graphic like that at the, at the very beginning of the pandemic obviously the bar corresponding to the rate of car crashes death is going to be much bigger than the bar corresponding to the rate of deaths due to COVID-19 because we are at the beginning of the pandemic. So mathematically speaking and geometrically speaking, there's nothing wrong with that chart. Yeah, you have one number, you have another number, you represent them graphically over a zero baseline, and then you are able to compare the two, the two graphics. But if you think about the data itself and what, the, what it is that you are comparing, you are essentially comparing apples to oranges, so to speak, because you are essentially comparing something that is highly contagious and that can be, as it happened, unfortunately, it can be transmitted exponentially to something that cannot be transmitted, to something that is not contagious. Car crashes are not contagious, whereas a pandemic is. Therefore, that bar graph, something can be mathematically correct, but rhetorically, or if you want to put it that way, reasonably wrong. Right. That is not a good graphic at all, not because of the graphic itself, but because of the underlying misunderstandings about about what the numbers truly are and truly represent. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there, there are a lot of examples, great examples in the book, but also I'm sure people just reading the news can come up with examples. I wonder if you have common ones that people do maybe unconsciously or without any malintentions, but that ultimately create misleading information or misleading charts to some degree, you know, on a daily basis, perhaps like in their work, in their, in their, you know, collection of data, they're as neutral as they can be in their presentation. They have no attempt to, to persuade people necessarily. And yet there are some issues. What kind of sure. daily issues? Might so we be? yeah, the, the simplest one is, for example, not thinking about which level of, let's say, granularity you need in your chart. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let, let's go to these specifics. Let's suppose, for example, that you're trying to report, I don't know, something about your, your consumers or something about the products that you sell, right? The, the sales of your products. Mm -hmm. And you report 
the average sales of all your products, and you just report that, our average sales have been such and such. And by average, I mean the arithmetic mean. Any arithmetic mean or any other type of a measure of central tendency, and there are many, there's a mean, there's a median, there's a mode, and there are different types of means and so on and so forth. It's a very coarse representation of an underlying distribution. Okay, so when it is appropriate to use just the mean or the median and just report that this is the average sales this year of all our products. Well, that is appropriate if the sales of all your products are actually relatively close to that measure of central tendency, right? Some of them have, have sale a little bit more, sold a little bit more. Some of them have sold a little bit less, a little bit, a little bit above the mean or a little bit below the mean. But I try to think about, for example, a distribution that doesn't look like that. Try to think about, for example, a distribution where you have tons of products that have not sold at all and some products that have sold millions and millions of dollars. Right? That would be a very skewed distribution. And if you only report the measure of central tendency, the mean, the median, or even any of those, you are not giving me a clear picture of what the reality is. In that particular case, it is better to represent the spread of the data or even each sale, each type of product as a little dot in the chart, just because the distribution is so widespread around mm -hmm. that measure of central tendency. The old joke, there's an old joke that I use all the time and it, it, it's everywhere that it's like, it goes like, imagine that you are in a bar with nine people and all of you are making the average salary in the United States. Let's suppose that is $50,000. Some of you make 70, some of you make $30,000. The average would be $50,000, which is the average, right? And you're all in a bar. Well, suddenly Elon Musk comes in and all of you become a millionaire on average, right? That, that's the old joke about it to, to, to explain this problem, which sounds really silly, when you use an example like these, but it's a widespread problem. The, the, the problem of trying to simplify too much an underlying reality that is inherently complex and therefore it needs to be presented in a complex manner. Now, the, the flip side of the coin is that there are certain types of realities that can be represented simply. So again, if your products are all clustered, the sales of your products are all clustered around the measure of central uh, of central tendency, then you don't need to report every single product, right? Because the measure of central ten tendency will be a good representation of the underlying distribution. So oversimplification or overcomplication are two extremes of a spectrum, but it's always, you know, it's always possible to find some sort of like middle ground between one end of the spectrum and the other, according to our understanding of the data, according to our subjective understanding of the data that can lead us to justifiable choices of how to better represent that data. Yeah, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, especially when it comes to tools and techniques. I think the tendency in, in many organizations is that people are becoming a little bit more data literate, a little bit more comfortable with programs beyond you know, an, a basic Excel chart, a bar graph, pie chart or whatever. And so we have many more people that are turning to places like Tableau, which can make some, some beautiful charts, but also can add complexity. So when people are trying to, especially within organizations, represent information, how can they kind of avoid the, the very simplistic things that are not very helpful, as you just mentioned, but also when do they know or when should they question, I guess, the complexity of their information too? Because I think, yeah, one of the tendencies we see is a chart or a dashboard that has a bunch of metrics that ultimately, you know, I don't think it helps at all. 
how do you how do you measure those or how do you work between those two extremes well i i work basically on a on a case by case basis and i for example i create whenever i'm all right, let, let me back up a little bit. In order to, visualization can be used for multiple purposes. And visualization comes into the analytic cycle, at least in two different stages. Uh, one of them, when you are analyzing the data, trying to understand what the underlying patterns that may hide behind the data are, visualization can help with that to discover those patterns. But once you have finished the, the analysis process and you have come up with sort of like a list of things that you want to display or communicate, to a decision maker, to a manager, or to your peers. You can also design a visualization that communicates those messages. That's what I specialize in, right? How to communicate those points. Well, one of the first steps that I usually take whenever I design a graphic is to forget about the graphic. Once I have, once I have the analysis, and the analysis is not something that I do my, usually myself because I am not a statistician, a data scientist, or an economist. I usually partner up with people who know much more than I do about those areas. But once sort of like the list of points that need to be communicated is put together, I forget about the data for a little bit and I forget about graphics for a little bit. And I try to organize that list of points that I want to make, creating some sort of hierarchy from the most important one to the least important one. Mm -hmm. And I, I do that because it, it's the, more or less the same technique that I used to write articles or books. You begin by putting together the skeleton of what you want to communicate. And then after that, you start fleshing out that skeleton by writing the actual book, or in this case, designing the graphics. So whenever you want, you, you have a checklist that, that those things that you want to that you want to communicate, then you need to think about what type of, let's say, task each one of those topics is related to. And by task, I mean, what do you want people to get from a graphic that represents that point? Do, they want, do, they, do you want them to compare things to each other, seeing change over time, seeing the association, covariation or correlation between two different variables, seeing patterns in a geographical area, seeing portions of a total. Each one of those is a task, being able to see any of those. Each one is a possible purpose that a visualization may have. Well, according to that purpose, there are certain types of charts that are more suited or better, better suited or, or, or worse suited to address that particular thing. And then is when you make choices about the type of graphic that you should use to represent your data. I mean, we could go, I could go on and on, but there are several websites out there that can help you make these types of choices. There's the data visualization catalog, for example, that's a website that can guide you make your choices. And then you need to think about whether you want to organize that list of points that you're trying to make pairing them with charts into a narrative or some sort of like sequential presentation of the topics that you want to cover, in which case you need to think about the structure of that, of that narrative as well. But th these decisions, again, are very ad hoc. They're made on a case-by-case -case, case -case basis. It's really difficult to come up with sort of like general rules in, in visualization, the same way that it's very difficult to come up with general rules in writing. All that we can provide is some guidance, all that we can provide is examples of how people make these types of choices. All that we can provide is sort of like a reasoning framework on, on, on how to make these types of decisions. If your organization wants to leverage data to drive success, explore Pragmatic Institute's training offerings. 
We provide individuals and teams with actionable guidance, hands-on practice, and a business-oriented approach so that they can solve problems and propel decision-making with data. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com slash data. Yeah, well, on the flip side of that, not making the charts or the representations, but reading them, are there any words of advice you have? Let's say if you're a stakeholder and somebody is presenting you with information, what are some of the things that you would encourage them to think about? Well, as I said before, as any visualization is a partial representation of data, whenever we see a chart, we shouldn't ask just about what the chart is showing, but also what the chart is not showing. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to the example that I presented before, if I see a graphic that is only representing a median, I will immediately ask about the underlying spread of the data, whether they are, for example, um, outliers in the data, you know, what the quartiles of the distribution are, what the standard deviation is. And then I will ask, why didn't you represent those in the, in the data? There may be good reasons not to show those, maybe showing, you know, the standard deviation around a point estimate may make your graphic look very cluttered and busy and unreadable. And maybe that is besides the point, simply because the distribution has a very small spread and therefore just the median or the mean is a good representation of the data. But that may not be the case. I will ask why are not you not showing that? Uh, also, uh, additionally to that, I will, if for example, I see, let's say, a forecast, right? I, the other day I was reviewing a graphic that was showing um, how different international organizations predict, uh, what international organizations predict that the, that the world population is going to look like 50 years from now. And it was a simple line chart that showed, well, the world population is predicted to reach, let's say, 9 billion people or 10 billion people in the next, let's say, 20, 25 years. My brain will immediately jump and ask, well, but, but, but what is the uncertainty behind that point estimate? Probably this is not just a single, just a single point estimate forecast that you have made. It's probably a range of values. Show me that uncertainty. Right? What is the sort of like the optimistic forecast, the pessimistic pessimistic forecast? You know, the middle forecast. That would be a, a, a much a more interesting representation of the data itself. So, in other words, reading beyond the chart. A chart is super useful to discover patterns, trends, to communicate, but it's also useful for a reader to look a little bit beyond the chart at the underlying data, if, if possible, consulting the primary source or inquiring about how the graphic was created, asking the designer how the graphic was created, what the presumptions were, and the, the choices that underlie each design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you've also consulted it at many places. I mean, I think it's interesting, a place like Google, for example, you would think is, you know, highly data driven, obviously, very good, I would hope with data visualization, and yet they're bringing in consultants like you. What does a company or an organization like that have to learn or improve on? I want to ask you next about, you know, the places that aren't quite Google, but it, I think it's interesting, a place like Google, some, some somewhere that's already highly data literate in general, what kind of improvements are they looking to make? What kind of changes or, or challenges do they face? Well, the work that I do for Google is uh, essentially art direction and project management. So I work with a branch of Google called Google Trends. And I art direct the work of many visualization designers from all over the world who take Google search data and they try to visualize it in creative and interesting manners. So it's more a, a work of art direction more than, than other things. But in other cases, 
in a, for the work that I do for other companies is actually training. So I, I teach people how to make visualizations, try to bring their, their visualization skills to the next level, not in the sense of using software tools. So I don't teach software, but in the sense of improving, for example, the clarity of graphics or the elegance of graphics, making graphics more presentable, better designed from the point of view of visual design, caring about readability, legibility, the quality of the, the, the type, the, the text, how to organize graphics in narrative ways, how to emphasize the topic or the theme that the graphic is about. So I focus much more on visual design aspects. Besides also teaching, strategies or techniques about, for example, what I mentioned before, making choices about which type of graphic is more or less appropriate depending on the depending on the purpose of the graphic that you are designing, or also making choices about the level of detail that you need in a graphic if you want to communicate that particular story. That's what usually I consult about. And also I do a lot of actual consulting. So people you know, design graphics and they can send them to me for review and I do reviews of those graphics and, and provide some guidance or feedback on them. So it depends a lot on the client. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit about why data visualization is, it seems to be, if not, becoming more important itself, then at least the acknowledgement of it is becoming more prominent. People are really, in many cases at organizations, becoming more concerned or more aware of data visualization and its strengths and weaknesses. I wonder if you could say a little bit about what is at stake when organizations are, are pushing, maybe some people are comfortable with the way things are and others want to bring in a data visualization consultant or to focus more on their data visualization. What are the sort of pros and cons of, of focusing in on and hoping to improve data visualization? Well, I, I'm usually not very inclined to oversell data visualization because I think that some people out there are oversell a little bit saying, mm -hmm. you know, this can be done in minutes. Um, you can just create an interactive graphic in, in two minutes. I mean, you can, certain tools allow you to do that, create a, a big dashboard with tons of data in a matter of minutes, but that doesn't mean that the graphic is going to be readable. Um, so, it, it, and also we should not oversell the power of data visualization. So data visualization certainly can be powerful if it is if it is well used. As I said before, it can be used to either explore your data and discover certain patterns or peculiarities of the data that may go unnoticed if you don't transform those data into graphics. So it can be used in, a, an, in an exploratory phase of the data analysis process is very useful for that, extremely useful for that if it is used correctly. And at the same time, it can also be used to communicate the same reason, the same, the same reason that it is useful to learn how to write clearly is the exact same reason why it is useful to learn how to visualize clearly. It's just another language. It's another language that may supplement, complement, or in some cases, even substitute written or, or, or spoken language. Although I usually recommend to pair written or spoken language and visualized language, because when you, when you put them hand in hand, you get the best of both worlds. There are certain mm -hmm. things that are better explained through a visual, and there are certain things that are better explained through words. And we need to put them side by side and have them uh, uh, work together. So that's essentially what I teach. I mean, it's like how to, how to leverage these this power and how to how to use it but also always being aware of the shortcomings of data visualization and the many myths 
that that revolve around it. Like, you know, the, we've all heard this saying, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And I try to dispel that myth. That is not true. It is not true. It all depends on the graphic that you are representing. So I, I don't teach just people, let's say, about the bright side of data visualization, but also about the dark side mm -hmm. that data visualization may have, because we need to balance out and be aware of both. Yeah. I wonder if you have any advice for, let's, let's imagine like a, a C-suite is considering how well they're doing when it comes to data, data visualization, and maybe they don't have a lot of people who have been in other organizations in the last few years. And so they don't, they don't really have anything to compare with. What kind of questions might they ask or, or what kind of assessment might they think about to see where they are, you know, whether they're meeting where they should be or hope to be and what kind of improvements can they make in, in the company or in the organization? What are some of the questions you can ask to kind of rate yourself or assess yourself on your organization's data viz and, uh, and related policies? So every organization is different. So as I have just mentioned, I try not to oversell data visualization. Not every organization needs to use data visualization in a very, in a very advanced level. Uh, sometimes it is just enough to create very simple charts or graphs in a tool installed almost in every computer. You mentioned Excel before. Well, Excel can be really powerful at creating data visualizations if you know how to use it well. And perhaps Excel is all that you need. It's all that you need. You only need Excel, perhaps because your, your data is not you know, big in size or in dimensions. It's, it's a, small, a relatively small data set. And Excel is more than enough to handle that. You don't need to purchase extremely expensive software or learn advanced techniques of data visualization because all that you need is bar graphs, line charts, pie charts, and a few maps here and there. If that is enough, then great, just go for it. But the way to identify whether you're doing good or worse or better in terms of using data visualization, there is not really an abstract general worldwide sort of like, uh, let's say uh, target or, or, or level of quality that everybody needs to achieve. It's more, it needs to, these needs need to be identified more at the local level, at your level. Do you feel that there are certain types of, let's say messages that you cannot communicate clearly and efficiently with the tools or the techniques that you're using at the moment. If you believe that that is so, maybe that is the, that is the opportunity, that is an opportunity to explore, you know, expanding your skills in communication, not necessarily just data visualization, but communication in general. Visualization is just part of that, part of that effort, trying to incorporate a new tool or a new technique, or try to learn a little bit more about the ever-expanding vocabulary of data visualization to see whether are, there are types of charts that you're not using that can help you convey your messages a little bit better, right? That's how you get better. I see this more as sort of like a progressive process of increasing development rather than sort of like a huge investment in terms of training that you might not need. It depends on your organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and there, there's so many nuances that we can get into and obviously people should check out your work to get, to really dig in. I mean, we can't do it justice in a, in a short podcast interview like this, but I wonder if you have any advice for people listening who want to just improve Wherever they are, as you just said, it might look different. But if you were going to recommend that they start doing, let's say, two things in the next day or so that would help improve their visualization or maybe their literacy or maybe their their ways of reading, not just making. But what, what are two things that people interested in this 
can start to do or implement in their work that would have some significant effects? First of all, I assume that everybody who listens to this podcast probably has designed at least one chart in the past, let's say, week or month or something like that. Mm. The first, one of the first things is to sit down with the person who regularly reads your graphics and actually try to assess their level of understanding, whether they get the messages that you're trying to convey. Not, not so showing them the graphic, having, read, having them read the graphic for, let's say, a couple of minutes, and then go back to them and ask them, what did you learn from that graphic? If the answers to the, that question match, let's say the purposes that you had in mind when you designed the graphic, then you know that the graphic is working. But if there is a mismatch, then maybe it's the time to learn a little bit more or practice or try something, try something different. So that yeah. would be one of the things that I would do. Second of all, I would try to, you know, take a look outside and see what other people are doing to see whether there are ideas out there that you can borrow for your daily work. Unfortunately, today, there are many places where you can go to get inspiration for new ideas. There is the, you know, the Data Visualization Society, which is a professional association that everybody and anybody can join. Thousands of people with a very active Slack channel in which people talk to each other about visualization techniques. Sometimes these discussions can be really obscure and deep, but sometimes they are at a very high level and they can be, they can be super useful for newcomers. So that would be one of the places that I would go hmm. or, or, or books such as a, there's a book titled The Big Book of Dashboards, which I find particularly useful for a business people because it's not just a discussion about how good practices in dashboard design, but it also includes tons of examples of dashboards that you can get inspiration from. So that will be another source. There are many books out there nowadays that you can consult. So maybe get a book or two about data visualization, such as the one that I have just mentioned, browse through them and just, you know, borrow ideas, steal ideas shamelessly. Nobody's going to blame you for that. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. And I wonder, you know, as people are looking for uh, inspiration and ideas, where can they follow you and, and your work? Well, right now, the best place to follow me is Twitter. I have a relatively active Twitter account in which I post mostly about data visualization. I also have a website, but I am in the process of renovating it right now. It's albertocairo.com, but it's down right now, so you will not see anything in there. I will probably renovate it at the end, by the end of the summer or something like that. I'm revamping it. Those will be the places, mainly social media, in particular Twitter. Twitter is the, the platform where that I use more, the most... And also, I mean, you can you can go to YouTube. You can go to YouTube and, um, and search for my name, and you will find plenty of talks and presentations that I have given throughout the years, in which you can get all these ideas that I have described in the podcast presented in a more nuanced manner and with tons of examples. So, if you want to get more about that, I think that that's the place to go. If you don't want to spend any money, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> No, I think that's all of that is great advice because I think you're obviously a wealth of knowledge. And yes, if people can and see some of the things that we're talking about, either in your book or some videos, it's a, it's a much better uh, medium than podcasts talking about visualization. But uh, still, really valuable to be able to to hear about a bit about your experience and your advice. And Alberto, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today for Data Chats. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again. 